So do you ever come across those people that are just opposed to everything? You might have the best idea or the most well thought out plan, but there's always that person that says no, or that's opposed. I had a coworker one time that stood against everything that I am for. And in my more immature nature back then, I couldn't help but mess with this person every time I worked by bringing up controversial topics or whatever to get a reaction just to make work a little more interesting. I hope that I have grown out of that by now, but maybe not. Or maybe you are that person who opposes everything. And maybe it's because you're afraid. Maybe it's fear of change or maybe it's fear of change in your comfort level, or perhaps you benefit from the way things are and you're afraid that if things change then maybe that benefit will be taken away from you. We see this type of attitude in people in every aspect of life, at home, at work, at church, and every other group of people that you associate with. In our passage today, we see Jesus facing opposition from religious leaders. So I've titled this sermon, Oppose and Amaze, because that's exactly what we see in this passage, in the confrontation that Jesus is having. The people that oppose him are also amazed at the things that he says. So our main point today is that we would see some principles from Jesus' response in the face of opposition and apply those examples to our lives. Our passage this morning is found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 46. I know that's a lot of verses to go over, so I hope you brought some snacks with you because you'll probably be late to lunch. Just kidding. I'll try to make it brief. So before we get into our scripture, let's get a little little bit of context. Um, That Last week, Pastor Craig taught over the parable of the marriage feast. And in that story, and over the last few weeks, one of the main topics we've been discussing uh, is being prepared. As Christians, we ought to be prepared for the coming of Christ. It's this teaching of repentance and the miracles that Jesus performed and the other things that he was saying and doing that would make these religious leaders and political leaders do anything they could to get rid of Jesus or to discredit him. So that being said, we're in Matthew chapter 22, and uh, let's read verses 15 through 17. Verses 15 through 17 says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? It's important to take note that the Pharisees and the Herodians are collaborating here. Typically, these two groups of people were at odds. 
They were enemies, if you will. You see, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who had dedicated their lives to following the Old Testament law to a T, or at least to following their interpretation of the Old Testament law. The Pharisees and many of the Jews absolutely hated the Roman government. They hated the Roman government and the idea of paying taxes to any foreign government. In their eyes, giving tribute or paying taxes to anyone but God was a direct insult to God himself. The Herodians, on the other hand, were part of the political party of the king of Herod of Galilee. The king Herod of Galilee. Herod and his followers had received power from the Roman government and were in no doubt in favor of paying taxes to Caesar. Despite these groups' hatred for one another, they found common ground in their hatred for Jesus. In Luke 20, verse 20, which is another parallel passage of this, it describes these people as spies who pretended to be righteous. Even the way they approach Jesus in the last part of verse 16 is kind of slimy. I'll read it for you. The last part of verse 16 says, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. They are buttering him up worse than your typical car salesman. When Sarah and I first got married, we were in the market for a new car, and and when we were living in Houston, we went to a uh, car dealership that didn't have any of the prices on the windows, right? We already know that sticker prices are a scam, but still, you want to know about what you're going to pay for something. They didn't even have that, so I already knew it was going to be a disaster as soon as we walked on the lot. So I walked into the building, and I was talking to a salesman, and he kept insisting on how awesome this car was and that we should take it for a drive and then come back and talk about the price, right? I don't think in those terms. I say, tell me the price, and if I can afford it, then I'll take it for a drive, right? But this guy was trying to get me to make an emotional decision rather than a practical decision. In other words, he was trying to trap me into buying this car, These Pharisees and Herodians are using a similar tactic. They're trying to touch on Jesus' emotional side and to boost his ego if he had one. But Jesus isn't buying those tactics. Let's see what he says in verses 17 through 22. Or 18 through 20. He says, but Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. So there are two takeaways that I wanted to point out from this. Our first main point is that Christians should remember that we have a dual citizenship status. Christians are in this world, but not of it. We're in this world, but not of it. Therefore, it's our duty 
to obey the laws set before us, we have an obligation to fellow man and to God. It's our duty to obey those laws and rules set before us unless they are opposed to our godly living, unless they're opposed to the way we're supposed to live for the Lord. And even then, when we disobey our earthly society, we're still subject to suffer earthly consequences for those things. I encourage you this week maybe to even read through Acts or read through some of Paul's epistles that he wrote uh, from prison. Paul's a perfect example of what it means to be a citizen of earth and a citizen of heaven, right? Even in his disobedience, he suffered so many consequences on this earth, but even challenged us to be at peace with all men if at all possible. The second thing I want to point out, obviously, is that Christians are true citizens of heaven. Therefore, we ought to live our life on this earth in obedience to God, first and foremost. This includes glorifying him in everything that we say and do, as well as doing our very, very best to fulfill the Great Commission. Our second point is found in verses 23 through 33. And it's that Christians should practice, should know and practice good doctrine. 23 through 33, it says, On that day, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, And the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second, and the third, and down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. That's pretty bold, right? I can't say that I would begin a conversation like that. You're mistaken. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God, but Jesus is bold in the way he responds. He says in verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, again, they were astonished or amazed at his teaching. So in this case, Jesus is opposed in the theology or in the doctrine of the resurrection. The Sadducees, another group of religious people, believed only in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses, or the law. They argued that in these books, there was no proof of the resurrection. There was no proof of the resurrection in the law. Jesus tells them that they don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. They assumed that if heaven awaited a resurrected person, that it would be a continuation of earthly institutions. And as believers, we know that this is false. Take marriage, for instance. 
marriage is a representation, and we can tell this from other parts in Scripture, that it's a representation of Christ's relationship with his church. When his church is gathered together in eternity with him, there will be no more need for the institution of marriage. Regarding the scriptures, Jesus used the book of the, the books of the Pentateuch against the false doctrine that the Sadducees were teaching. He uses a direct quote from Exodus 3, 6, where Moses is talking with God through the burning bush. The language that he uses, that God uses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead of, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This indicates and alludes to the fact that these men are still living. He proved them wrong, not out of the sake of being right. I feel like we often fall into that trap as Christians to, uh, to be right is often so important to us when that doesn't necessarily matter, when the bigger picture is that we would potentially have somebody come to know the Lord. So he proved them wrong, not for the sake of being right, but perhaps that they would see their error and believe in him. So our two points under this is knowing good doctrine. How do we do that? Knowing good doctrine, we study your Bible. And I mean actually study it. Pick up a commentary or two. Ask deeper questions. Certainly we want to read scripture on our own just to know God more and to spend time with him, but we also don't want to just stay there. We want to go deeper than just reading. Spend time in prayer over the passages that you read and study. Here in the near future of our church, we're going to start doing our small groups and extra Bible studies again throughout the week. And I encourage you, highly encourage you, to get involved in those. It's not enough just to come to church on a Sunday morning and then let your Bible collect dust all week long. We need God's word and we need each other. One of Paul's biggest challenges in his New Testament books, and I think it's written in every single one of them, is his warning to the churches to stay away from false teachers and false doctrine. You see it all over Paul's writings. An analogy I like to use for this is famous artwork. Do you know how experts can determine fake art replicas from the real deal? They study the real stuff. They study the real stuff. They know the age. They know its texture. They know where the special signatures are and so on. Because of this deeper study, it makes them easy. It makes it really easy for them to spot the fake stuff. The same concept is true of doctrine. If we're in our Bible, studying his word, studying together, asking deeper questions, it'll be easier for us to spot the fake stuff. On the other hand, if we're not, how easy will it be for us to be deceived? So Jesus uses scripture within the Pentateuch to defend true doctrine against what these Sadducees are saying. 
And I asked the question, how many groups exist in our world today that claim Christianity that we know are false? Are we like Jesus, able to defend the truth? Are we in our Bibles? Do we know good doctrine? The second part of that is practicing good doctrine. As we get involved, as we study our Bibles and learn good theology, the next step is to be able to practice it, right? We hear the word wisdom said a lot in the church, and it's displayed a lot throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom can be defined as applied knowledge. In other words, are we living out the things that we see in Scripture? Are we living out what we're learning? Here, Jesus uses his knowledge of the scriptures to have an answer ready to the opposition that he's met with by these Sadducees. I have a few verses that I want to read to you that I think uh, apply well to this idea of practicing doctrine. The first is 2 Timothy 4.2. You can turn there with me if you want. 2 Timothy 4.2. This is a passage where Paul is talking to a young pastor. And he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready, right? We've been talking about that. Be ready. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Just a couple of books over more is First Peter I mean, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. He says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And lastly, James chapter one, verse 22 through 25. James 1, 22 through 25. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Are we putting into practice what we're learning? Are we living out what God tells us to do? Our third point is found in verses 34 through 40. It says, Christians should take comfort in knowing that God draws people to himself. Christians should take comfort in knowing that God draws people to himself. Let's read these verses real quick. Back in Matthew chapter 22. 
It says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now the parallel passage in Mark chapter 12, the parallel passage in Mark chapter 12 explains this a little deeper. And so I want to turn there and read a few verses uh, briefly. It's Mark 12 uh, verses 28. And then we'll read also verses 32 through 34. So Mark 12, 28 says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, talking about Jesus' conversation with the Sadducees. And he had answered, and he, and he saw that he had answered them well and asked him, What commandment is foremost of all? And then the rest is what was spoken in Matthew. And then skip down to verse 32. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So in Mark's account of this conversation, it's likely that a question which was intended to trap Jesus ended up turning on the lights for this lawyer. While scripture doesn't go on to explain anything else, it doesn't say whether or not this man began to follow Jesus or not, but it's still important to take note that this man agreed with what Jesus was saying. As he heard Jesus' conversation with the Sadducees, he agreed with Jesus' response. And when he questioned him himself, he again agreed with Jesus' response. And Jesus tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I want to point out here what Jesus quotes in the Old Testament as far as the commandments go, the two greatest commandments on what hang the whole law and the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many of us in this room are good at doing that full time, all the time? Right? None of us. Paul tells us in Galatians that the law was a tutor for us. That it was put in place that we would come to know that we are sinners and that we need Jesus. By this, Christians can rest and the comfort of knowing that God can and does use our obedience to him and our commitment to good doctrine, especially in the face of opposition. It was at this time when the lawyer began to agree with Jesus that the questions stopped coming. Remember, Mark's account says that no one else asked him any more questions from then on out. As believers, we know that it's not our job to convince people that we're right 
nor is it our job to save people. We know that that's God's job. Our job is simply to share the truth, to share the gospel, and to live it out. Like Jesus, we will face opposition. There's no doubt about it. If you are following Christ, you will face opposition. But God will use us. And even when God uses us in the smallest ways, even just to turn the lights on for somebody, whether or not they come to know him, we don't, you know, we may not ever see that. But we know that God is using us. And even in those small ways, it's worth it. The opposition is worth it. As Jesus concludes this conversation in verses 41 through 46, he kind of takes the offensive here. Um, and let's read those verses in Matthew 22, 41 through 46. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked him a question. Jesus asked him a question. It says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So we see that Jesus takes this offensive and he questions those who opposed him. Again, not to prove that he's right, but to show them that he is the Messiah. Jesus has a direct quote here from Psalm 110, verse 1, which the Jews rightly regarded as a messianic passage of the Old Testament. The common belief in those days, though, was that the Messiah would be an earthly descendant of David and he would reign and rule on the earth and free Israel from captivity. And Jesus here reminds them that that's not true. That in fact, the descendant of David would be eternal. He proves to them here the deity of the son of David. So as we conclude our time together today, I wanna encourage you that as you remember the things we've discussed today Christians have a permanent residence with Christ and a temporary citizenship on this earth while we're here we're called to live for him and in doing so it's good for us to know and to practice good doctrine and good theology as we do this we'll face opposition but we can take comfort in knowing that we serve the one true God. And he is using us and he is glorified. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again in prayer, just grateful for being used by you, Lord. Even in the face of opposition, may you may you make us bold, encourage us, help us to stand firm in the faith. Lord, we need you for these things. We need to know and to practice good doctrine. Help us to be uh, encouraged to do that. Lord, help us to be constantly reminded of our citizenship in heaven and that everything we do on this earth is supposed to be lived out for you. Help us to flesh out the things that we're reading and learning in scripture.
Lord, we love you and we need you for these things. In Christ, let me pray.